Um, so again, we are thankful to the Lord for his word, for what he has for us today. And uh, I just pray that um, preaching is uh, much more than just someone talking. It's uh, when we consider the scripture, the, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So because it is inspired by God and because we're Christian, um, the act of preaching really is to uh, serve the word of God, which is bread to us. Um, the reason why people have found boredom in preaching is because they're not eating. And so if you're, you know, so hopefully the word of God is like caffeine for you today, you know, to, to create a vibrant uh, Christian walk in your life. And many times people preach because they got something to say. Uh, that's not what we do here. We want to hear what God has to say. Uh, preaching sometimes avoids things in scripture like Romans chapter 9 or hard things in the Bible. We don't do that here. Um, and most importantly for me as, as a pastor, I'm not here for y'all. Uh, honestly, I'm here for his glory. And yes, I love you. And I'm not saying I don't love y'all. Don't get it twisted. Um, but listen, if my happiness and joy and contentment in preaching was based upon you, I'd be in big trouble. So definitely not here for you in the sense that uh, I'm looking for applause or anything, even though sometimes I do because I'm, I'm a sinful person in that sense. So, uh, so if we're all honest, we all like some applause in our lives, don't we? Um, but Jesus, who deserved all applause and praise, what did he get in John chapter 6? <laughs> he got many disciples who left him because he said some crazy things. Like, you know, drink of my blood and eat of my flesh. And they were like, yo, hold up, who's this dude think he is? And then they left him. Then he left him when he got arrested, his own disciples. Because he didn't show up like they thought he would. And then when he came into Jerusalem, all the people praised him coming into Jerusalem. And then when Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to, the same crowd said, crucify him. Because he disappointed us. He, we thought he was the king. He definitely was the king. And our pastors uh, will highlight that for us today. So I hope that our hearts are right here today. I hope that we're here to eat of the word of God. That we're not here to be scratched or tickled of the ear but that we're here to eat of his word. So we're in John chapter 19 um, today. John chapter 19, you could join us, verses 17 to 27. John 19, 17 to 27. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 17 starts, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews to, uh, said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. 
Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And this is the word of the Lord. To you be the glory, Father. We thank you that we are here today and that we can say for some of us who have just gone through so many things that we are alive and we're thriving in you. And so we thank you that even through destruction and even through pain, even through things in our lives that we can point to and say, how did I survive that? Well, it was because you kept us through it. So, Lord, we thank you for your preserving power. And we know that this is a great display, the scripture we just read, of you being in sovereign control. This was not out of your control, but you gave your life and you laid it down. And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, that as we lay our lives down, that we would remain trusting, obeying, loving, knowing that you're in control even though our lives may speak or look like they're out of control, the things in our lives. But Lord, help us again to know that you are sovereign, and that you are in control. So Lord, may this word today be encouraging to us. May it be our meat today, Lord God. May our meat be your will. May the bread that we eat be your will. We love you and we thank you, Father. We we ask that you will be merciful and gracious to us. May my eyes be fixed on you. May our ears be fixed on you. May the, we ask for the Holy Spirit to have your way. Convict us of our sin. Discipline us. Correct us. Train us in righteousness that we will be the men and women of God you've called us to be. We love you and we thank you. And all of God's people said amen. 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 Praise the Lord. So... <clears throat> This last time, uh, the last time we were in the Gospel of John, if you remember, we covered verses 1 through 16. And in this part of the Gospel of John, we saw that Jesus was arrested and he was being tried because of the chief priest charging him with the charge of blasphemy. And because of this, they took Jesus, if you remember, to Annas, who was the former high priest, and then to Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. And then finally, they took him to Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the region. In chapter 19, it begins with Jesus being flogged or scourged. And we spoke about how we have seen images where Jesus was scourged on the back, but scourging was not limited to the back. People were scourged all over the body. People were scourged on their feet, and it would actually be very painful because of the whole body being whooped, as we used to say. We forget often, too, since it includes the whole body, that he was most likely also scourged at the neck 
on his head. And so imagine being scourged all over the body. And something that uh, I noted was how Jesus told his disciples that they also would face the same type of punishment. He told them this in Matthew 10, 17. He said, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. Then in Mark 13, 9, he, he told them, but be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before the governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. You would think that, you know, Jesus would say, hey, it's going to be okay. No, you're going to get whooped. You're going to get scorched. Actually, we see this coming to pass in Acts 540, where some of the apostles actually were beat and were told not to speak in the name of Jesus. But we know what happened, right? They continued to do it nonetheless. Walking with Jesus guarantees suffering. Jesus told them in John 15, 20, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. So this is the inevitable call of the Christian. Have you suffered as a Christian? It's included in the path we walk in, following in the example of Christ. The soldiers continue to torture Jesus, twisting together a crown of thorns, and clothing him with the purple robe, mocking him and calling him the king of the Jews. So even though all this torture happened, Pilate continued to say in verse 4, I found no guilt in him. No charge. Pilate said this three times in the gospel accounts. John 18, 38, John 19, 4, and John 19, 6. He found no guilt in him, yet the crowds and the chief priests still wanted Jesus to be crucified. So the charge Jesus was facing was blasphemy according to the law. In John 19, 7, we, they said we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. If you remember in John 10, we covered this last time we were in John. Jesus said in John 10, 30, he made it very clear, I and the Father are one. And they followed by picking up stones to stone him. And then in verse 32, Jesus said, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? Then he said in verse 33, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. I remember a brother out in the street telling me that his problems began because he started believing that Jesus was just a man and not God. Later in verse 36, Jesus responded to this by saying, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? So Jesus, of course, did call himself the son of God. It was an admission to deity, and he wanted to kill him for it. But why is all this happening here in our text? What is going on here? Mainly here, God is providing here. You know, we, we get enamored by, you know, uh, the passion of the Christ. You've seen that movie, right? We're like, wow, what pain, what, what, how he suffered through it. God was providing. That whole suffering and the pain that happened, he's providing for you. So through their rejection, God would give his son to die so that we could have what we needed most, which was a Passover lamb for our sin. 
See, they refused to see Jesus as king of kings and instead settle for Caesar, a godless earthly king, which really reflects the condition of their hearts. You see, when we don't treat Jesus like a king, when we treat other things with royalty and more priority, who's your God? You see, because of the condition of their hearts being hardened by sovereignty and being cold, these people, left to themselves and to their hearts, would trade Jesus, the sinless son of God, for Barabbas, a criminal, an insurrectionist, full of sin. In our text today, Jesus was delivered over to them to be crucified, and so they took Jesus and did that. Our passage today continues from there, and we see three things today in our verses. Number one, we see the walk in verses 17 through 18. The writing, verses 19 through 24. And lastly, we see the woman, in verses 25 through 27. The walk, the writing, and the woman. Verse 17 says, And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So in verse 17, it begins with Jesus bearing his own cross. What some point out about this particular verse is that in the other gospel accounts, we have record of Simon Serene carrying the cross for Jesus. And critics uh, actually bring this out as a contradiction. They ask, which is it? Was it Simon Serene or Jesus who carried his own cross? <laughs> the synoptic accounts tell us that they compelled Simon to do it, to carry the cross for Jesus. And they also says that they seized Simon so that he would carry the cross for Jesus. We see this in Matthew 27, 32 and Mark 15, 21. And this seems to imply that Simon was pressed or compelled or that he was seized so that he would carry the cross for Jesus. And I think what we're seeing here is that at some point, Jesus was unable physically to carry his own cross. The cross that he was called to bear, he could not carry himself. That doesn't sound right, does it? See, Jesus, after being tortured and shamed, was walking to his own death, needing help. Not because he wasn't able to carry the cross. Let's not get it twisted. He was God, but physically as a man, he couldn't carry his own. What amazing restraint by the Son of God here. To walk, not being able physically to carry his own cross to the place of his death, knowing that he was God the Son, who could have called legions of angels down and break actually his physical limitations by his deity. What amazing restraint by Jesus. That he would allow himself to be shamed, mocked, and tortured, knowing that he had the power to stop it all. But instead he chose to walk the shameful walk. He chose the walk of humility instead of superiority. He chose to lower himself so much that another man was asked to carry what he could not finish himself. What great restraint. And what a great example for us whom God has called us also to carry our own crosses. <laughs> Jesus went out, it says, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
While walking to his death, Luke 23, 27 tells us that a great multitude followed him and there were women mourning and lamenting for him, walking towards the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, which is mentioned three times in the Gospels. John 19, 20 tells us that it was located outside of the city, but near it, and it could be seen from a distance. The reason why we call it Calvary, you ever use the term Calvary? The reason why we call it Calvary is because Calvary in the Latin means skull. I don't know if you knew that. I was laughing a little bit because we do got some churches called Calvary. I was like, man, it's Skull Baptist Church? I want to change your name. Um, nah, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm probably going to get in trouble for that, but it's okay. <laughs> some of my brothers uh, in, the, in the ministry have Calvary Baptist Church and stuff like that, but shout out to y'all anyway. <laughs> but it literally means skull. And that's where Jesus is going. Why was it called the place of the skull? Well, there's three reasons historically why some people believe this. The first is Jerome, an early church father, held to a tradition that this is where the skulls would be found. Skulls were left there because that was the place where people would be executed. So for Rome to kind of push fear upon people. They would crucify people there and the bodies would rot there and they would leave bones there to kind of let people know, don't play with Rome. The second, a more modern popular view was that the hill had a shape of a skull, but there is no biblical evidence for that. I mean, it sounds like a movie, but that's not true. And lastly, uh, you know, there was Origen, an early church father, who believed that that's where the skull of Adam was found. Um, and actually, some legit people believe that, but I don't believe that one, though. I don't think that was the case. I think Jerome was right that it makes sense that if that is where people were executed and left to die, that you would see fragments of bones there as a display of death. This is why I think the scriptures call it the place of the skull. This is where Jesus was being taken, along with two others, according to the other accounts, where right beside him were criminals. In verse 18, it says, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So here was Jesus, mocked by saying, Hail, King of the Jews, while knowing that he was going to die. He was struck by the hands of sinful men, wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, but they cried out, crucify him. Pilate saying to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate was right, by the way. There was no guilt in him. There was no sin in him. Yet he was taken there where criminals were executed. Why is this happening to Christ? Answering this question for many of us, I think, I think it speaks sometimes of an already like dog moment. Of course, I know what he's doing. He's dying for my sin. But maybe that is the problem here today. Maybe we have become bored with Calvary. Maybe we haven't thought deeply about it. Maybe we haven't seen our Savior at the cross before we actually do something that he's called us not to do. Do you want to bother yourself? 
by looking at sin for what it is, look at the cross. Take some time to meditate upon what's going on here and repent of your boredom or, you know, kind of a relaxed posture towards the cross. We have to remember that what we are seeing here, saints, is provision. We're seeing the provision of the Lord, not just for our sin, but we're seeing a great display of sacrificial love for us. See, this is where husbands can know how to love their wives. You want to know how to love your husband or wife? Look to the cross. This is where believers can know how to love their enemies. You have a hard time loving someone who you feel like you shouldn't love? Look at the cross. He loved you in spite of you. He died for us while we were yet sinners. This is where we can know how to entrust our lives to the one who judges justly, no matter what's happening around us. God was in full control. This is where it looked like men were in control, but it was where God was in control. This is where one can know how to forgive someone. This is where one can know how to live selflessly. And this is where one can know how to be missional. You ever have a hard time sharing the gospel with someone because you're afraid of how they're going to act towards you? Look to the cross. See, our greatest example on how to live and walk this life and carry our crosses, it comes from Calvary, the place of the skull wolf, where God in the flesh came to make a people who were not his people, his own people. This is where we were bought and forgiven. So don't browse over what is going on here. Repent of your boredom. Repent of your rolling of the eyes when we go through this passage today. Repent of that. Do you know that gospel proclamation doesn't stop at salvation? Have you become bored of the gospel? Don't you know that you're sanctified by the gospel? The good news of Jesus that saves you, keeps you, and keeps you, you know, in this process of being sanctified that is very difficult at times. See, it's the foundation of our faith. The reason why we're built up is because of the gospel. And the cross is that place where the believer must go in order to know how to live and how to die. So have we taken time to read this and think deeply about this walk? This walk that Jesus is walking, how God the Son is walking to his own death. Jesus enduring all this for the love of God the Father and for which all of us have been made his people. Do you know that what's happening here is that Jesus in John 12, 32 said when he was lifted up from the earth, he would draw all people to himself. This is where we were drawn to God by him dying for us. This is how much God loves us. You know, Jesus would endure more mockery as if this wasn't enough. He would endure more to suffer. He would suffer more so much that they would not only torture him physically, but they would write over his head words that were true, but written again to mock him. The walk Jesus walked here led to his crucifixion, where they would write an inscription over his head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So that's a second uh, view, uh, the writing in verses 19 through 24, where it reads, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Don't tell me what to do. Who are you? So the inscription said of Jesus that he was from Nazareth and that he was the king of the Jews. It was written in three different languages. The reason, why is that? Well, Aramaic actually was the common language in Palestine. Latin, the official language of the Roman army and government. And Greek actually was the common language used throughout the Roman world. Actually, it was used in Spain, also as far as Asia. So the writing was meant to communicate clearly that this man on this cross, actually, who Pilate found no fault in, was a king. Now, how is that problematic? Well, kings usually aren't being crucified. But Pilate did this anyway as a way of mocking Jesus to the point of degradation. Mostly this was to mock the chief priests and also the crowds that wanted an innocent man crucified. The writing here was true of Jesus, but the chief priests and the crowds refused to believe it. And the reason here was because of the hardness of their hearts. They even said, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather that this man said he was the king of the Jews. I was thinking about how Jesus felt as he heard this. Not only from what they did to him physically, but the struggle he had mentally. The rejection. Thinking less of him. Not seeing who he was. Falsely charging him with blasphemy. See, the torture was not only from what they did to him physically, but as a man, he must have felt the brunt of rejection and false accusation. You ever been there? Jesus could have said, I am a king, but instead he kept silent and took what we ourselves deserved, which included what he had must have felt because of their rejection. Jesus was fully God, and we at times forget that he was fully man, and he must have felt this way. What was written about him was true, but it was written to mock and shame him. If it were any of us. Having what Jesus had as far as authority to call upon angels at any given request, would we have done what he didn't do? I don't know about you, but when I feel misunderstood or like I feel like I got to redeem my name, you know, I start calling people up to be like, yo, like, do you know, I'll call Wayne up and be like, yo, so-and-so saying something about me. You know? Get, get, get my homies together, you know, and you know what I mean? Like, I need affirmation. That's not me. You don't think Jesus felt that way? If it were any of us having what Jesus had, what would, we would have done opposite of what Jesus did here. But here was Jesus. Here was Jesus maintaining restraint because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I hope this serves as an example for you today for when you feel the feelings that Jesus must have felt in our text. How we may have disappointed others because of failing to meet their expectations of us, which does happen. But the difference is that we at times reveal our faults and weaknesses and we give people reasons for not trusting us. <laughs> We may have given people legit reasons to think less of us. 
But regardless of this, we should follow the example set before us, that when reviled, he did not revile in return. Even when it would have been completely legit for Jesus to do so, instead, he humbled himself and followed the will of the Father nonetheless. Jesus wasn't trapped in what people thought about him. But he was fixed on what God wanted him to do. What does God want you to do in that season, in that situation? Jesus was fixed on what the Father wanted him to do and not on what others thought of him. Even when publicly shamed and falsely accused, if the writing over his head wasn't enough to mock him, they would add to the shame by dividing his garments. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots so the soldiers did these things. This was quoted from Psalm 22 verse 18. Psalm 22 is a song, a psalm of lament. Lament, by the way, is the dominant theme of the psalms. More psalms are written on lament than any other theme. 59 of them were written for lament. The second closest theme is actually praise of God. Hello. So God is cool with you crying out to him. (laughs) It's biblical. It's in the Psalms. I read complaints in there. God, why do the, you know, the wicked prosper? I'm over here broke. Why are they saying there is no God? Where are you? I feel like there is no God. But the second thing is praise to God. Praising God. Even when feeling lament, we should be praising God. See, this particular psalm was written by David, who wrote actually 74 recorded psalms that we have. And the New Testament actually quotes 15 times messianic quotations or allusions from this particular psalm in Psalm chapter 22. Some early church fathers called Psalm 22 the fifth gospel because of how many times it was quoted. So David, from the beginning, expresses his his lament before the Lord, saying, My God, my God, in verse 1 of Psalm 22, check out how it starts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Why are you far? Cited two times in Matthew and Mark. So right from the beginning of the psalm, David cries about how he felt forsaken, which was quoted by Jesus to express how he felt that way on the cross. See, the, the, John the writer points out Psalm twenty two eighteen and how this event fulfilled what Jesus was going through here. Psalm twenty two eighteen says, "They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." It's important to remember that to fulfill here means to make something total or complete. And the purpose of what was written by David in the suffering was that the Christ would come and complete what was written by David at that time. So the immediate context, yes, David was writing because he felt the way he did in Psalm 22, 18. It was written 
so that it would be fulfilled, though, by Jesus on how he felt in our passage today. See, he made that complete. It wasn't complete yet. 2 Peter 1.21 tells us why. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It was inspired by God to point ahead to what Jesus felt. See, the Holy Spirit inspired David, who was in anguish, to write a song for the purpose of pointing to Jesus and his fulfillment of it. What's amazing here is that when David felt forsaken, it was for the purpose of pointing to Christ who was forsaken. When David was mocked, it was for the purpose of pointing to Christ who was mocked. When David was surrounded by his enemies, it was for the purpose of pointing to Christ who was surrounded. When David was parched, thirsty, it was for the purpose of pointing to Christ who would say on the cross, I thirst. You see, when David felt anguished in his soul, leading him to say that they pierced his hands and feet, it was for the purpose of pointing to Christ who would actually experience in real time his hands being pierced and his feet. See, David in Psalm 22 felt humiliated. He was a king whose garments were divided, royal clothing that would be left for gambling. This was for the purpose of pointing to Christ, who was in fact the king of kings and the Lord of lords, hanging on a cross while these jokesters were going through his clothing to see who would win a bet. The writing over Jesus spoke true of who he was, yet it was used to shame him. Yet the writings that, saw, that uh, David the psalmist will check it was written a thousand years before this happened. It was to speak of the one to come who will complete what David was feeling at the time. You would think that Jesus would be about self-preservation, calling upon angels, showing his true power, and actually establishing his kingdom. But instead, he endured for the joy that was before him. That's what he did here. What was his will and joy? John 640 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, this is a great example for us saints to carry our own crosses as well. Jesus said, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How are we doing, saints? The walk of the Christian inevitably brings with it a cross. If you say you're a Christian, you should have a cross to back it. A most painful and cruel form of execution, which involved nailing someone to an elevated cross, would be the symbol that the Christian should carry. We are called to follow in his footsteps. The fulfillment of scripture really encouraged me because in his pain and suffering, Jesus continued to show that he was, in fact, the Messiah promised. It really encouraged I needed that. I needed to remember that this was promised, that God had a plan, that suffering had meaning. Suffering has meaning. There was a reason why Jesus suffered. It was to save. Why do we suffer? It's to show who he is somehow, some way. You know, yeah. Only Jesus could suffer perfectly and perfectly show us who God was. 
We suffer imperfectly. And God still shows himself off in our lives. See, I don't handle suffering right. I don't like suffering. If you like suffering, you need help. You like issues in your life, you need to go get a counselor. I don't invite suffering in my life. It happens as a result of me being a Christian. <clears throat> I'm not exempt from it. I live in a world that comes against me carrying my cross. I live in a world that mocks and tells Christians we're foolish for believing what we believe. I live in a world where I see people, even in church, live comfortably, where I struggle just to come to church. See, we often highlight that Jesus is the son of God, which is true. But he was also a man. And this man had a mother. He had a mother, Mary, who actually needed saving herself. Mary needed a cross also to save her. And what Jesus would do on this cross is provide for a woman who needed care. While he's saving, he's also providing for his own mother. In verses 25 to 27, our last point, the woman, we see in verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we see four women standing by the cross. We see his mother, the wife of Joseph, a descendant of David, Matthew 1.16. His mother's sister, some hint, hinted at the possibility of this being Salome, being Mary's sister because of Mark's account in Mark 15.40. It's possible. Mary, the wife of Clopas, we don't know much about her, but tradition says that Clopas, uh, being the brother of Joseph, the husband of Mary, was who she was. She was the wife of him. And then Mary Magdalene, you know her story. She appears in Scripture first in Luke chapter 8, where she was delivered from seven demons. She would also then, she went from being demon-possessed and oppressed to being one of the witnesses of the resurrection. And Jesus would then here focus on his mother. But notice Jesus called her woman. I call my wife woman, there'll be problems. Right? It sounds disrespectful. But it's not. Jesus was actually putting her in her place. He actually did this in John chapter 2 in the wedding of Cana. Remember that in John 2? Let's read that together in verses 1 through 5. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I'm out of it. But the hour had come here in our text. And he called her woman, which was not an act of disrespect, but it was calling to attention what was happening to Jesus at the cross. Remember, Jesus spoke of the cross as being glorified. Well, he will be revealed as who he was. That's why the world calls him a fool on the cross. But we know that was God on the cross. 
revealing himself as the provider for our sin. Jesus calls her woman because Jesus was being glorified. Jesus was revealing himself as her savior. So as her savior, he would address her as woman, which is appropriate, not cold or disrespectful. He will provide for her not only salvation from her sins, but listen, he would also provide for her practical needs. The world and even professing Christians have made a grave error of meeting needs without the gospel. Meeting needs apart from giving people the gospel is no different than what the world does. But giving the gospel and ignoring the needs people have is actually an error in itself. We're, the church is dividing over issues of social justice. You know, there's a lot of debate on that right now. What do we do as Christians about the basic needs of people? Basic needs like, you know, when someone is, when there's prejudice, when there's racism, when there's, you know, uh, injustices happening in our culture, in our nation, in our streets. Now, I'm here to tell you, I, I'll tell you first, that I think critical theory and critical race theory is evil. It's trash. It's a trash and it, it is a worldview. And what some are trying to do is make critical theory or critical race theory a tool. Well, we got the scriptures. I don't need that garbage. But it doesn't mean that racism isn't happening in our culture, though. Being one, I've experienced that. Okay? So it does happen. But it doesn't mean I guilt my white brothers and sisters over what happened historically either, though. We know people that we love. Me and my wife know people that we love that are angry over this issue. They're cursing at other believers while calling themselves Christian. Angry because of the injustices that are happening. Angry at the church for responding the way we're responding. But at this church, I'll, I'll tell you from the gate, we are not going to borrow from the world how to view this issue. And we're going to respond biblically to it. And we're not going to compromise the scriptures. We're also not going to deny what's happening and what has happened in our culture. Jesus gives us a great example here of saving a soul, but also providing for her practical needs in the process. Not only would Jesus provide atonement for Mary, but he would also provide John to be her son. We see this in verse 27. Then he said to the disciples, behold, your mother and from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You see, while salvation took place, the needs of a mother were met. Indeed, a great example for us today. We need to follow suit with Jesus. As he was saving, he was also meeting practical needs. So when we go to Caroline Street, we're going to preach the gospel. But we're going to meet with police. We're going to meet with the neighborhood. We're going to find out what the pain is, and we're going to go out and be witnesses, and also people that can meet practical needs of our community. Has there been racism here in the city? Yes. Does it continue to be a problem? Yes. Will we continue to provide the needs for those who feel disenfranchised? Yes. But not at the expense of losing what we have been given, which is the gospel. See, some, I think, you know, uh, What's happened in a lot of churches is as a result of all the noise and all the division, some have settled to be isolated. They detach themselves from the world and from its issues. 
But if we are called to carry our crosses following in his example, then that should lead to a life of holiness, effective witness, and care for those in need. So where we are compelled as Christ, uh, from Christ to meet the needs, may we meet the needs with joy and with hope, but never ever abandoning the call to repentance, to faith in Christ alone for salvation. That's what we are called to do. Jesus set that example for us here in our text. Jesus went out bearing his own cross and needing help to carry it. The writing over his head spoke of him truly, but wrote to mock him. They divided his garments, treated him as a criminal, leading him to the place of the skull where he hung and died. And also at the end of it, he provided for his mother her practical need for a son. I pray we will follow in his footsteps, saints. Praise the Lord. Father, would you help us be your church? We know, Father, that you dying on the cross was a way of uniting your church, making your church one. May we look to it as our hope. Lord, there's so much division happening in the church. And we look at the cross and we see that that's where you unified us. And so, Lord, help us to be a church that first and foremost loves you. And God, help us to love others. Help us to meet the needs of our community. Help us that as we meet with policemen, as we go into our neighborhood and see what the pain is, to see what's going on, that we will go as ambassadors. We pray, God, that you would deal with racism that's happening in our culture, in our cities, in our families, in our homes, and wherever the case is. Would you not allow issues to come into the church and divide us? Would you help those mothers, God, that are single, that are struggling to make ends meet, that need help? Would you help us to be the church for them? That as we carry our cross, as we, Lord God, are examples of, Lord God, cross-bearing, that we would also look to the widows, to the orphans, to those in our culture that are in need. Help us not to be hypocrites, to walk by them and not do anything. Help us to be like you. And God, when we are experiencing rejection or experiencing, you know, looking at other people and wondering what they think of us and people that think less of us, God, would you help us to entrust ourselves to you? That what matters most is what you think, not what others think of us. Help us to do what you've done, to walk, Lord God, the walk you've called us to, to walk that Calvary road, that we would do it in such a way, Lord God, where you're glorified. And so, Lord, we pray for the unity of our church. We pray, God, for the sanctifying in our church, that as we bear our crosses, that you will be glorified. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be the church. We love you, Father, and we 
ask that you would be with us today, that you would preserve our unity. In Jesus' name, amen.